2: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra. Just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: Life is
4: a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
3: of a detour.
1: Going for your first ever run around the park.
5: Literally running errands all over town. Running
1: for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com
3: running. New Balance. Run your way.
4: We need to shed our sort of conventional ideas of empire, which is empire's hegemony, where there is a dominant core that uh, controls or dominates peripheral areas. And I would argue that the the Holy Roman Empire, first of all, doesn't have a stable core, and it's also much more of a a kind of overarching, idealised order.
6: That was Peter Wilson discussing the Holy Roman Empire.
0: He was able to use a very simple palette of water grass and trees, as we can see here, and turn it into something that looked almost natural.
6: And that was Sarah Rutherford at Blenheim Palace, talking about the work of Capability Brown. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of March 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Peter Wilson, who is Chichely Professor of the History of War at the University of Oxford. Peter's the author of a new book entitled The Holy Roman Empire, A Thousand Years of Europe's History, which tells the story of this unusual Central European entity from its formation at the time of Charlemagne to its eventual destruction by Napoleon in the early 19th century. Our digital editor, Emma Mason, met up with Peter in Oxford recently to find out more.
1: Your new book, The Holy Roman Empire, covers a thousand years from 800 AD to 1806. How did you go about writing such an extensive history?
4: Oh well, I I thought right from the beginning that I wasn't going to do it in chronological order because then it would just be one damn thing after another. (laughs) So it was then a question of finding a kind of thematic structure that enabled me to convey what I wanted to say in terms of an argument whilst also including elements of chronology within each of the themes so that readers can pick up the story and see where it heads in its various different directions.
1: How would you say we should define the Holy Roman Empire and how does it compare to other medieval empires?
4: Well that's that's a huge question that I could probably fill um, easily 45 <laughs> minutes trying to answer. I think the the first thing is that we we need to shed our sort of conventional ideas of empire which is Empires hegemony, where there is a a core, a dominant core, that uh, controls or dominates peripheral areas. And I would argue that the the Holy Roman Empire, first of all, doesn't have a stable core. Uh, and it's also much more of a, a kind of overarching, um, idealised order. doesn't work perfectly all the time, but it nonetheless is different from how we would conceive of empire, given the legacy of um, European colonial imperialism and the way that we tend to conceive of empire today.
1: Mm-hmm. And what were the origins of the Holy Roman Empire?
4: Uh, Well, the the actual origins come in a kind of typically sort of murky political fudge and deal between um, Pope Leo III, who's a very shifty character, and the Frankish strongman Charlemagne. Um, Charlemagne wants um, legitimacy, wants to be uh, recognised for his uh, conquests, which are genuinely hegemonic uh, conquests, whereas Pope Leo wants a, a protector. Uh, and the Byzantine emperor is is too far away. Uh, And in the process of establishing this, they come up with what is essentially a fiction, that the ancient Roman Empire has continued, that it's now defunct in Byzantium, and then they transfer it, they so-called translate it, from east back to the west. So um, according to them and subsequent writers, the Holy Roman Empire is in fact a direct continuation of ancient Rome.
1: How integral would you say religion was to the Holy Roman Empire, and, and how did the empire handle conflict and disorder?
4: Well, again, two, two enormous questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I suppose, first of all, um, religion in the sense that the empire is an idealised um, Christian order, uh, and one of the main parts of the imperial mission is to uphold that order, and that includes where necessary, interfering with the papacy and questions of reform of the papacy. Um, So there are conflicts then in the Middle Ages which are to do with the balance between secular and ecclesiastical jurisdictions. And then those conflicts become overlaid with then um, conflicts over the nature of religion itself, particularly um, given the Reformation uh, in the 16th century. And the Empire manages to overcome those after considerable effort and considerable conflict by essentially taking doctrine out of politics. So religious, um, religion is treated really as a, as, a, a, as a form of jurisdiction, as a form of rights that can be handled through a legal process. Um, and disassociated from the actual doctrinal conflict uh, or rather doctrinal content uh, that would be uh, allied to the structures, the church structures.
1: You mentioned conflict there. Um, I I noticed in the book you say that the Holy Roman Empire's relations with Italy, France and Poland um, dictated the course of countless wars. Could you tell us more about that? Uh,
4: Well, there are the wars that are fought within um, the area of the empire itself, especially during the Middle Ages, conflicts which are um, essentially between um, the emperor and... Uh, the Pope or the papacy, um, various uh, rivalries to do with that. Uh, And I think we should see those conflicts precisely as that rather than as national wars. These are not wars between Italy and Germany. And likewise, um, the conflicts uh, to the east, so um, various conflicts with Polish, um, Bohemian and Hungarian Uh, elites are, again, conflicts which we can't really impose a sort of later national um, uh, interpretation on. These are conflicts over, uh, often very highly personalised conflicts, um, rather than conflicts which are over, say, national identities or um, constitutional issues as we would conceive of them in later years.
1: And how many conflicts, I mean... A ballpark figure—is there—is that possible?
4: Um, well, then, then you then you have to to, to see what you define as a conflict, uh, and and this <laughs> this this is uh, this is problematic. But I would say that um, uh, the empire is uh, certainly it's, it has no worse a record um, than other states in terms of uh, internal civil wars um, throughout the Middle Ages. There are only really. Um, three or four that of of any major substance after the the kind of ninth century where there is a a whole cycle of quite vicious conflicts Um, in in early modernity um, during the 16th century where france and the netherlands are tearing themselves apart and the empire is largely quiet there are only small localized conflicts then of course we have the 30 years war which is a genuinely cataclysmic conflict and then we have a, a renewed cycle of internal conflicts between Austria and Prussia in the 18th century, which arguably are also um, imperial civil wars. They're fought over dominance within the the area of the empire. So these are major struggles, but then we are looking across a a millennium. Mm,
1: Absolutely. And and I noticed in the book you also say that the empire's history has has been somewhat reduced to a repetitive and chaotic cycle lasting. Is that a continuation of... Well, earlier, what
4: you say, is exactly. Exactly. I mean, the the big problems with trying to interpret the empire are trying to fit it into categories um, that are invented much later, uh, and so the empire gets reduced to Germany's Middle Ages, um, largely because the Italians and the Czechs and the Poles um, couldn't really find much use of it for it when they were constructing their own national identities. So it's left to German historians who see it as, uh, or saw it, I mean, because views have changed, of course, but who saw it really in terms of a, a failed nation-state. So all the conflicts are then chalked up to supposed deficits uh, in in the inability to create a, a stable and strong nation or national state rather than actually looking at how contingent those conflicts were on um, much more immediate factors and they're not about grand visions about how uh, how the state should be constructed but our um, rivalries often highly personalized rivalries within a relatively small elite and there are also conflicts which are not major struggles in the way that say the 30 years war was the medieval conflicts are they might be of some duration but they are fought um in in an entirely different manner, not involving large numbers of people.
1: Okay, and in terms of the empire generally, how, again, like you said, such a huge, vast period of history, but how did the empire change over the course of its existence?
4: Okay, Uh, it changes, um, first of all, it becomes much more hierarchical. Um, uh, they insert ever more layers um, defined by status and rights um, so that the emperor ends up um, only having immediate relationship with the great bulk of the population. So in other words, um, the emperor didn't act on um, the inhabitants as his direct subjects. They are subjects of intervening l- layers of authority, and he acts then on those intervening layers. So this is one of the reasons why it looks so complicated, mm-hmm. um, um, because people don't like these kind of complexities and are trying to sort of reduce it into, into something more simple. Um, the other thing is that its political culture shifts from one based on personal presence, where it was much more important to meet Uh, amongst the elite so the emperor travels around constantly that's one of the reasons why there isn't a fixed capital he's constantly traveling around showing himself um, and, and and meeting individuals in a in in often following discrete negotiations behind the scenes and then they basically meet in some kind of assembly and formally enact Um, a decision as if it was a kind of spontaneous uh, moment and this gradually shifts as writing becomes much more important and then we shift to a culture that's based very much on written communication the intention being to resolve conflict by fixing it uh, by making um, decisions precise but of course if you make things precise then it also makes disagreements precise (laughs) and this is one of the problems this is what I would say that while I'm I'm relatively more upbeat about the Empire's history, um, I would also insert notes of caution particularly by when we get to the 18th century because the written culture had uh, certainly made things much more rigid and it was much more difficult to, to make major changes because everyone was pointing to their own particular rights somewhere enshrined in some kind of written document.
1: And you mentioned uh, emperors there. Who would you say are the most remarkable Holy Roman?
4: Oh, well, when you have so many to choose from, um, <laughs> there are certainly some good characters. Uh, well, clearly, um, Charlemagne is fundamentally important and they, all the others refer to him. So even the Habsburgs claim Charlemagne as one of their ancestors. Um, Otto I, otherwise known as Otto the Great, um, who is the one who is crowned in the middle of the 10th century and helps um, cement the empire as a kind of hierarchy of three major kingdoms with Germany as the leading kingdom. Um, then we've got the sort of bad boys like Henry IV who's picking fights with uh, the papacy and his sons uh, uh, rebel against him. Um, Frederick the, the First, Frederick the Second, the two great Stauffer emperors. Um, uh, we have Kings who don't get um, the imperial title but nonetheless exercise imperial prerogatives such as Richard of Cornwall who is a, an English um, an English king who or rather an English nobleman who becomes king of Germany um, so some unexpected people like that and then we have yes the sort of later on the Habsburgs so Charles V and um, my, one of my favourites is, is Ferdinand III, who's very, very pragmatic and he's also very musical. Um, yeah. So yeah, there are just so many to choose from. So
1: really. <laughs> and um, And towards the end of its existence, how much control, uh, sorry, control did the Empire have over the kingdom within it?
4: Uh that's, uh, it varied. It varied. I mean, the usual um, argument is that the empire has basically dissolved into a kind of loose confederation of um, sovereign states. And this is certainly not the case. Um, uh, the, there are obviously large, the largest being Austria and Prussia, both of which have, by the end of the 18th century, effectively their own empires outside the empire. But even Prussia adheres to... Um, the imperial political culture because it sees advantages in it so the prussian monarchs never have any desire to actually leave the empire even when they're offered um, a title of um, emperor of northern germany by napoleon in in 1804 they don't abandon the empire and in in many ways prussia is still technically within the old empire right up to 1806 Um, so It's it's not so much that um, the emperor or imperial institutions had sort of direct control. It's rather that the component elements see advantages in remaining within the system.
1: You mentioned eighteen oh six. There, obviously, very important date. (laughs) Um, For those of our listeners who perhaps aren't overly familiar, how exactly did the empire? Dissolved. Uh, what was? How do you explain its demise? Right,
4: um, its demise comes through a combination of factors um, that are triggered by the um, French outbreak of the French Revolutionary Wars in 1792, uh, and the empire is dragged unwillingly into a conflict because Austria and Prussia have decided to make a temporary alliance of convenience, um, and in order to legitimate this and their war effort against France, um, they. Um, drag the empire into a a war and then Prussia pulls out um, in 1795 because it has trouble controlling its Polish subjects. And this essentially partitions the empire, the whole of the northern part of the empire is withdrawn from the war. Um, The southern part goes under with the defeat of the Austrians um, against the French. Uh, And then when Austria has been defeated and the southern part of the empire, effectively corralled into an alliance with uh, Napoleon, then Napoleon settles his scores with Prussia and um, extends his uh, network of satellite states across northern Germany as well. So it's in in a number of phases. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the key things are the internal weakness, which is the fact that Austria and Prussia are now too large to be controlled by imperial institutions, and external pressure, the pressure from Napoleonic France.
1: Excellent. And in your book, you explore the negative interpretations of the Holy Roman Empire and how its history has been largely neglected. Why? First of all, could you tell us why you think those negative interpretations have developed and why it's been largely neglected? You mentioned earlier it's a very difficult history to sort of get your teeth into, get your head around, I suppose. Is it is that...?
4: Yes, I think it... I mean, it, it, to be perfectly honest, it is just so complicated mm. and people don't like complexity, so they like to try to find... Um, sort of linear narratives that you can then fit all the events in, and the problem with the empire is if you construct that kind of narrative, it's based around emperors who are always doing the same thing, and they all seem to end up in the same sort of failures. Um, if we expect them to behave like monarchs did elsewhere, mm-hmm. um, so we ha- we have that as, as as one as one problem. The other one is that um, there is really no country other than Germany that has had any. Claim on the on the empire's history once it dissolved, uh, because all the other countries, um, so for example, um, Italy or, or or Denmark or or France or Poland, either became fully independent countries, or the bits of the territory that once belonged to the empire then joined them. Uh, and so they are always seeing their own development in sort of some kind of antagonistic, oppositional way to to the empire. So there wasn't any real desire to claim the empire in any kind of positive sense.
1: I was really interested to read that the future U.S. president James Madison drew upon the example of the empire to build his case for a strong federal union. Um, the Continental uh, sorry Continental Congress that would give his country its constitution in seventeen eighty seven. <laughs> Uh, Could you tell us more about that? Uh,
4: Well, uh, Hamilton and Madison were were arguing for a much stronger union um, following the experience of the um, American War of Independence. And what they wanted to do was to avoid a kind of loose union. And so they go through a whole um, series of historical examples. And the the empire, of course, was still in existence at the time when they write. And like a lot of people looking at it from the outside, um, they couldn't really understand how it worked. Uh, and they they see it in fact as a loose union the precisely the one that they don't want uh, and they point to all the kind of things that the empire seemed to lack and a lot of writers in the 18, later 18th and then in the 19th century um they, they 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 described the empire as a kind of deficit list you know there is no national capital there is no standing army there is no uniform system of taxation and so forth um but in by doing that they they Comparing the empire with what just one form of political organization, a centralized national state and the empire in fact had um, its sovereignty was fragmented and rights and responsibilities were distributed uh, along the hierarchy that I was referring to earlier and so it organized a lot of these things collectively and so if you if you don't see that then you think it they didn't exist. Mm. they just did, existed in, in very different forms.
1: What would you say is the is the Holy Roman Empire's legacy today, and and why is it so important that we better understand it?
4: Uh, I think its legacy on the one hand is maybe not so obvious, and part of the point of the book is actually to to sort of shed light on that and to actually show that it is important. Um, the second thing is I think it. It gets us to look and to consider European history in a a different way, Um, so not imposing um, frameworks uh, that are based on the frontiers of of present-day European states on the past, um, so, for example, discussing Northwestern Europe in terms of, of Belgium, um, the, the, the Netherlands and Luxembourg actually makes very little sense. These frontiers are all very, very recent origin. Even Germany is a sort of movable feast. Italy is, um, doesn't seem to exist and then does exist. Uh, and so I think if we sort of try to avoid back projecting... Um, much later um, perspectives on the past, then the, the, the past can speak to us in different ways.
6: That was Professor Peter Wilson. The Holy Roman Empire, A Thousand Years of Europe's History, is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. And in the US, the book is due to be published in April by Belknap Press, with the altered title of Heart of Europe, a History of the Holy Roman Empire. Before our next interview, I'd like to mention that the March edition of BBC History magazine is now on sale. Inside this month's issue, there are articles on the Easter Rising, The Dark Side of Elizabethan England, Sex Under Henry VIII, and History's Most Delicious Dishes, among other things. You can get hold of our March edition now in all good news agents in the UK and our many digital formats. Print editions outside the UK may take a little longer to arrive in the shops.
2: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. and on
4: it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
3: of a detour.
6: Each month in a magazine, we include an article where we visit a site of historical importance accompanied by an expert in that field. For our latest issue, we turned our attention to Lancelot Capability Brown, the renowned Georgian landscape designer who was born 300 years ago? One of Brown's greatest achievements was the grounds of Blenheim Palace in Oxfordshire. So that's where we dispatched our journalist, Nigel Tassel, in the company of garden historian Dr Sarah Rutherford. So let's hear how they got on.
5: It's a cold winter's day here at Blenheim Palace, um, but the view is magnificent out of, out of the window of the room that we're in. Uh, we're looking across at the Capability Brown-designed grounds of Blenheim Palace. Uh, I say we, because I'm in the company of Sarah Rutherford, garden historian and author, uh, whose new book, Capability Brown and His Landscape Gardens, is just about to be published. Hello, Sarah.
0: Hello, Nigel. <laughs> um,
5: tell me a bit about Brown to start off with. What, um, who was he? Where did he come from? Because we're, we're in these fine surroundings here, but he wasn't a man from... He didn't come from, from the upper echelons of society, did he?
0: No, this wasn't his natural um, place to be, but he came from a very small village in Northumberland, and that was called Kirk Hull, where he wasn't from um, what you might call the, the humblest class. His family were yeomans and his Brothers went on to marry um, ladies of quite good breeding and become estate managers. So he came from a family that was bettering itself. And he went to a local school and was taken up by the local landowner who gave him the opportunity to learn his craft of gardening and possibly landscaping as well. His origins are quite obscure in some ways. We don't really know what he did in his earliest years. He was born in 1716 and he worked at Kirk Hall in the 1720s, sorry, late 1720s, early 1730s. So um, he didn't have a university education or anything like that, but he had a multitude of talents that gradually blossomed and he made the most of them. So he moved out of Northumberland in the late 1730s um, and didn't leave his family entirely behind, but he moved south and stayed there pretty much for good.
5: Where do you think this drive and ambition came from then? He'd he, found this new, this new area to work in.
0: I don't know what drove him exactly, but he was in a time which was a maelstrom of change, of exciting things happening, of opportunity. The Georgian period for him, um, he was in the best place at the right time to take advantage of it, and that he did. He had um, a genius for landscape design, the artistic side of things. He taught himself architecture, he understood engineering... Uh, as, it, as he uh, gradually learnt his trade. And he was also an able businessman and got on well with his clients, the aristocrats, the king, the wealthiest in the land.
5: He built such, a, such an amazing client list, as you say, from, from royalties down through prime ministers, cabinet ministers, lords. He obviously was a man who, who did a good job, and did it with with good grace in order to kind of retain those and develop this word-of-mouth reputation.
0: Absolutely. He was the man that... He worked for the King, six Prime Ministers and half the House of Lords and most of the wealthiest men in Britain. And they were desperate to get hold of him. It was extraordinary. They would write him letters saying, oh, please come and see me, Mr Brown. I know that you've been unwell and haven't been able to come, but next time you're passing, I would very much value your opinion. Come and have a look at my grounds and see what you can do with them. So to have these men of power and wealth... Saying that to him, I think, shows that he was very highly regarded.
5: And he was highly regarded at a young age as well, because it was 25, was it, when he became head gardener at Stowe?
0: He went to Stowe in 1741, so that was, do the maths, 1716. Yeah, about 25, 26, something like that. So, yes, he was very young. He started off as head gardener, but then Lord Cobham, who gave him various landscaping projects to do he was also building lots of temples and garden buildings at the same time unfortunately the clerk of works um, disappeared in rather unfortunate circumstances and brown was given that job of clerk of works so that's when he taught himself a bit about architecture and he was able to run contracts for Lord Cobham so he understood how to manage staff and men doing jobs and all this sort of thing so he was given it was it wasn't exactly his apprenticeship because he had done that sort of stuff but it was the making of him with Lord Cobham who was could see his talents and made the most of them
5: and then when he left Cobham he essentially went freelance you know and and became featured, as you say, by by all and sundry. What was it about his work in particular that people seem to like? I mean, we're looking out the window here today at Blenheim. I mean, what in particular would maybe other lords who'd come here and see and be jealous of and want to replicate at theirs?
0: Every site has its own peculiarities. It's what somebody called the genius of the place. And Brown could see the capabilities of the genius of the place. In in today's terms, we'd probably call him Potential Brown because potential is the word we'd use. But he saw the capabilities and how to make an artistic picture out of them. He was an artist and you can think of him as a bit like Rembrandt or Picasso or Turner and people like Turner were representing his work in their own works of art. They could see he, he was making works of art themselves. But he was able to use a very simple palette of water, grass and trees, as we can see here, and turn it into something that looked almost natural. That was the key to it. It it looked as though it was natural. And we look at it today and think, oh yes, that vast lake at Blenheim, that 40 acres, that's got to be natural. But actually, it comes from the weedy trickle of the river Glyme, which is very unpromising. And he worked out how to flood a valley, dam it, and keep that water there so that it didn't stagnate, it didn't turn into a muddy pond. And he could um, use it as the sort of high point of the whole landscape.
5: His style seems to be very much on a widescreen scale. It's all about scale and largeness, for want of a better word, rather than intricacy. Would that that be a fair comment?
0: It's large scale made up of intricacy. (laughs) So it's both. He was good at the detail. He had to understand the detail for the engineering to to make the water features and create buildings, he also understood how to cite trees and shrubberies to make the most of views, to screen things you didn't want to see so that he might use a single tree to divide a view so that you looked either side of it at partic- and saw particular framed views... But that was, a, that was detail. He understood where to put that tree so that you got the maximum effect out of it. And one of his favourite trees was the Cedar of Lebanon with those flat... It's, it's a conifer with those flattened branches so that it looks like layers. And another one was a London Plain. He'd put one of those or two next to a bridge because its pale colour would highlight that there was a feature there that people wanted to see.
5: What about his competitors? What put him ahead of them?
0: At Stowe, Lord Cobham introduced him to lots of his friends, so he got a head start there and he went and worked for them even while he was at Stowe. When Lord Cobham died, Brown went out on his own as what we would call a consultant today, a landscape designer and um, landscape landscaper. and from then on, he never needed to advertise. Everyone beat a path to his door. And it's quite extraordinary. His competitors never had that kind of success. Uh, One of the nearest competitors, he, he he worked on about 250 or more sites. One of his nearest competitors, William Eames, worked on about 90 or so sites. But Brown was the one that they all wanted. He got the name because of his genius, I think, although it is difficult to tell... One landscaper's work from another just by looking at it. They used quite similar features, but Brown had the prestige. You know that's why they wanted him. He got the name. Um, The others were all rather more regional. He was countrywide. He was crisscrossing the country on his horse the whole time. A few sites in Wales, mainly in England, and he got asthma presumably from the horse. You know the dust of the horse, and he had to be laid up from time to time but on the whole he was all over the place like many consultants today you know he just went where the work was
5: would he've had his imitators would people have, have borrowed his style and tried to undercut him in order to get the work
0: oh yes they his competitors usually charged less than he did so uh, and also sometimes it took him a long time to get to a place and he, because he was in demand, he sometimes didn't turn up very often. So usually the more regional competitors were on the spot and they'd be there for their client whenever they wanted them because they were m- much more able to do that. So, yes, they did also... Um, used the same palette as him. Some of them had worked for him and then went out on their own, which he didn't mind in the slightest. And really, I don't think he cared. There was enough scope, there were enough uh, parks being made that he worked for the, the highest in the land and there was plenty left that he didn't touch that the others could hoover up the crumbs off his table, if you like.
5: How many jobs would he have going at one any one time? And therefore, how hands-on would he be with each
0: one? He was the face of the business. He might have a number of jobs at different stages. I can't tell you exactly how many, but, for example, he could go out on a preliminary visit, meet Lord so-and-so, go round the... I say site because sometimes they were parks already, other times they were agricultural land, so they weren't at all landscaped. So they'd go round the uh, gentleman's estate, have a look at it, he'd give the gentleman some ideas. Then he'd go away and get one of his men from his office to come out again and survey the site, because you've got to know what is there before you can start uh with a design. Then they'd do a design as well. So for about 100 guineas, you could get a visit or two from Brown, a survey from his man of the several hundred acres they were looking at, and a fair drawing as well of a design for the client to have. At that point, the client decided whether he wanted his own men to carry it out, put it on the ground, or Brown sometimes did that, especially on bigger jobs. I think at Blenheim, he managed the staff himself, Annick, he was working with his own teams alongside um, the actual estate staff as well, the the bailiff. So there were two lots of teams, very peculiar, that one. Must have been a lot of friction there. (laughs) Uh, So there were different levels that you could, uh, levels of work. So he might have a number of jobs on at any one time. Um, I think the 1760s is thought to have been his busiest and he was turning over tens of thousands of pounds. And in today's terms, you're looking at millions and millions and millions. But the, if, he, if he was paid £30,000 for a job or 20-something thousand as he was at Blenheim, that wasn't all his profit. That was to pay the staff and to, to um, get the job done. So he took a, a sum for himself and he had to pay for his office staff and um, uh, keep himself going.
5: How many people would he have under his command then, or as his regular staff?
0: Well, he had two men that we know of in the office who were surveyors and also drew up survey plans and fair drawings. He had a number of foremen, as I've said, some of them went out and worked on their own eventually after they'd learnt their craft with him, and he didn't mind that, it seems. So he overall had... I think, 20 or 30 foremen that he used. But then one like Melikant worked only at Chatsworth and then went down and brown hand picked him to work for the king at Kew, after, at the landscaping of Kew. And then after that, he carried on maintaining it. So um, uh, the foreman didn't work on every single job. They they were specific to particular places.
5: For landowners, was there competition between... Themselves for to have the, the best grounds. Would they would try would they see one one particular house's grounds and want to better that and therefore push brown to to new heights?
0: It was definitely one upmanship if they could afford it. Clearly here at Blenheim, the Marlboroughs could afford it. Uh, going back to. What I said earlier, if you could only afford a plan for 100 guineas, then you took that and got your own people to do as much of it as you could. Sometimes his plans weren't carried out, sometimes only partially. Um, There's a site in Hatfield Forest in Essex where part of it was carried out, but he wanted to serpentine the dam and make it wiggly of the lake that was already there. That was going to be very expensive, so they didn't bother to do that. (laughs) So...
5: (laughs) Did he tend to design to order? Was there any... Would would he incorporate the ideas of the landowner in his own designs or was he largely given free reign to, to impose what he wanted to impose?
0: Both. It depended on the landowner, of course. Some of them said, do as you want, just give me a landscape that my peers will be impressed with. I've got the money, you've got the taste, get on with it. Others said No, we want you to do a specific thing. Um, Jemima Gray at rest park uh, Rest Park has a very straight canal with a big building at the end of it and formal alleys of walk, grassy walks and that sort of thing. She wanted that kept because it reminded of her of her grandfather, who she was very fond of, I think. So Brown's job was to tinker around the edges. So he did a bit of work to the drainage, he softened the edges of this formal landscape and she put up a memorial to him, or no, a, um, a monument, sorry, not a memorial, because he was still alive, uh, and was very pleased with what he did, but he wasn't allowed his own free reign by any means.
5: But he would be happy to do that within... He was. He was...
0: Well, like any consultant, if you pay us to... Do something, you know. We'll do whatever you want us to do.
5: Yeah. Was there an international impact to his work? Was was he in demand elsewhere at all?
0: Yes, he was in demand, but he never went. He was asked to, to go to Ireland, but he um, he said no, no, he, he couldn't go over there. But he provided a, I think it was a stable block design for somebody, and he never went to Scotland. He provided a design for somewhere in France and maybe one or two places in Germany, but he didn't travel abroad. But his impact was that the continentals, the burgeoning colony of America, people came over here and saw what he'd done. Uh, Thomas Jefferson at Monticello went back to America and used Brown's ideas in his own garden in Virginia. The Jardin Anglaise in Europe was a great phenomenon and Catherine the Great created that that style of garden for her own palaces so she was a great anglophile and that's what she did.
5: He had that particular style what would be his signature touches?
0: Well it's quite hard to say he and his competitors and associates used quite similar Styles and features, one of the things I've found a lot um, in researching the book is that he puts an island at the end of a lake or a river, and the idea of that is to make you think that the water goes on forever. You can't see where where the water goes, so he puts a full stop around which the water runs. And that way, you can't tell that it's not going on for another 100 miles. When we see what we call his lakes, sheets of water, they were actually meant to represent rivers. So even this huge lake that we're looking at at Blenheim, it was meant to represent a vast river. It was called the Great River as well. And that was the idea. So it represented the River Arno in Florence or the River Tiber in Rome to evoke that classical Roman Augustan age. So you shouldn't think of it as a lake, you should think of it as a river really.
5: In the book you rank him alongside other Great Britons like Thomas Telford and Isabel Kingdom Brunel for his impact on the landscape at this time. Can you expand on that?
0: He was one of a number of geniuses in the mid-18th century. Um, You've got Telford, who was doing um, the roads, the, that great road that goes out to Anglesey, um, a little later on in the 18th century. There were and Brun, um oh Brindley, who was doing canals. He was very um, innovative himself, and they worked together on one or two schemes, including Anick. Um, so it was a time of great opportunity for people. If you had the talent, if you had the technical skills, the business skills, and understood how to promote yourself, you could go an awful long way. Um, People like Wedgwood were making a big impact and at the forefront of the Industrial Revolution. Brown wasn't quite like that. His staff were more artisans, like the furniture maker Chippendales. And so they were part of this great movement, but people were going in different directions.
5: You say it was a, a time that was ripe for him, could he have been born if he was born at another time would he have had anything like the impact he had?
0: possibly not because he he was a a recipient of happenstance I was going to say victim of happenstance, but that 's not no he was a he was one of the people who um, grasped it and made the most of it, so all these things came together at once. He went to Lord Cobham when Stowe was the greatest garden in Britain and was being looked at by the rest of the world, the Western world anyway, um, and got his reputation going there. He was loaned out to Cobham's influential friends. He was taken up by Lord Coventry at Croom after Lord Cobham died. Lord, uh, Lord Coventry had his own friends and relations, and so it went on like that. And Brown also was, he soaked up, knowledge like a sponge. He taught himself about architecture. He'd done his, his training in landscaping and gardening, but he must have had the talent to run a business to get on well with those aristocrats and gentlemen. He was never one of them, but there's a lovely story about him drinking a, a bottle of Tokai with Lord Butte of Luton Who, you know, and Tokai was a very rare wine. I mean, you wouldn't normally give it to your staff. (laughs) Um, And there's a a lovely story about um, when he met another great patron of his was Pitt the Elder. Um, And there was a chance meeting between Pitt the Elder and Brown at um, an inn one evening at Staines, where they both stopped for dinner. Fortuitous. And as they parted, Pitt said to capability Brown, "Go you and adorn England to which Brown responded, "Go you and preserve it," which is rather fun um, so he he took advantage of all those circumstances that came together. there was also something rather dry called the enclosure movement, which meant that land was being consolidated into single large parcels uh, with enclosure acts so that the landowners were able to get hold of large areas that could be laid out as parks so that that there were all sorts of different things going on at the same time.
5: To what degree do his landscapes uh, attempt to be functional as well as beautiful to the eye? I'm thinking in terms of country pursuits that the landowners would like to do. You know, obviously they need areas to do their hunting and wooded areas. And to what to what degree would he incorporate that into his thinking?
0: They were functional from an agricultural point of view. If you look at the grass out here, it should be grazed by sheep or cattle and also horses because horses were being bred um, and used a lot more. So they needed land to produce hay and grazing. Then you have... Um, timber in the woodlands throwing a woodland belt around a park was an interesting activity because it had lots of functions you could screen out the landscape beyond that you might not want to see you could raise pheasants in it and pheasants like woodland edges so long narrow belts provide a lot of woodland edge for um, their happiness which you can then shoot you've got the The production of timber was a great thing. It was very patriotic to produce timber. And in the 18th century, there were prizes given for those who grew or planted good stands of timber. So that was um, something for the long term. But even so, I mean, the the trees that we see here that are mature would have been um, little saplings when they went in, all the cedars of Lebanon, the beech, the others. And of course, we've lost the elms don't forget elms, because they were very important to brown. And so th- there, was a, there were a lot of different ways that you could use the landscape. It wasn't just pretty. It had an economic use as well.
5: Did he ever see any of his designs as he totally imagined it, when, when the trees had become mature? Or, or did he always he see them as works in progress during his lifetime?
0: Trees grow quite quickly, And so if he went back to some of his sites after 30 years, which he well could have done, if he'd gone back to Stowe, to the Grecian Valley, he would have seen that maturing. And as we've seen since the great storm in 1987, where things have been replanted, where you replant a woodland on the top of a hill, the brow of a hill, it may not be mature, but it gives it a false perspective it looks as though that hill is further away because the trees are smaller and you, you in your mind's eye you think they're uh, mature so actually you you started to get that view even though they weren't mature trees it's, it's different with specimen trees but um, in the woodland that that was quite um, easy to see
5: we've got to talk about his nickname because to anyone who doesn't know what capability refers to might think that it's a uh, Almost an insulting nickname to give someone of such genius, but as you've explained, the capability part wasn't describing him, but more describing his can-do attitude.
0: He was able to size up a site and say to the client, this place has its capabilities, my lord, meaning I can see how I could create a landscape that will please you. It might cost you a lot of money. And people tried tried to get him to reduce... Um, the costs of things and one of his clients one of the the rich ones he said well why would I do that you can afford it why do you want to penny pinch it's you know you want the wow factor when we came through the Hensington Gate today into Blenheim from Woodstock you think you're coming into a yard, then you go through an archway and then the lake and the bridge and the palace open up in front of you. So why would you penny pinch on that? But anyway, so he, he was looking at the capabilities of a of place and he could size them up very quickly.
5: But it's, it's still great marketing as well to have a nickname that basically says, I can do this job for you, doesn't it? In one, in one word, I am capable of yeah. doing that and your land is, is capable, has potential to also be exactly what you wanted to be.
0: Yes, that's really interesting, because he was the capable one himself. I mean, I, I, I call him a genius, but he was also capable. Um, artistic genius is one thing, but being able to handle all those different disciplines, the money, the staff, the clients, being able to get on with the clients, um, certainly it made him very capable.
5: And finally, of course, it's the 300th anniversary of Brown's birth this year, with lots of events planned. What is his enduring legacy to us today?
0: His legacy are those landscape parks, basically. He was the face of the landscape park. He didn't invent it, but he he did most of them, he, the most number of them. And they naturally settle into the British landscape. They're so beautifully settled in that you, you can't tell what's nature and what's artificial, his artifice. And that was influential all over the place so he he was really people seeing his work and then trying to copy it for themselves
5: do you think he still gets due attention or will this year uh amplify his legend and and give
0: him the due respect he fell into a big trough after he died in 1783 and people started saying, oh, his work was too bland, it was too smooth, it needed to be rougher, things needed to be rougher. And, of course, trends move on. We don't always stick with the same... We never stick with the same styles. But he... His name rather vanished. And so this year is brilliant because it means that we can publicise... Most of his parks still survive. They were very enduring. People didn't wipe them out they still have them and love them. So,
5: I mean, what we can see out the window as well, he would completely recognise if he came back today, he would pretty much say, that's as I meant it.
0: Yes. I showed you just now a, a, a drawing that he did um, that's in the book about how he was going to plant the island out here in the lake with the backdrop of um, a great grassy bank leading up to the town of Woodstock that was sticking up like a medieval town with a, a defensive town wall around it. And it's pretty much as he envisaged it. So, yes, he would recognise it without doubt.
6: That was tassel and Sarah Rutherford. You can read more from them in our March issue, which is out now. Sarah's book, Capability Brown and His Landscape Gardens, is due to be published by the National Trust in April. And Blenheim Palace is open for visitors every day of the year except for Christmas Day. There is more information at blenheimpalace.com where you can also find details about the Palace's Capability Brown themed events this year. Meanwhile, a Capability Brown festival is taking place in many locations around the UK this year to mark his tricentenary. For more information on that, head to capabilitybrown.org. And that is pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the Tudors' relationship with the Islamic world, among other things. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this
5: podcast.